0: Tonight is part two of Jonah. We are wrapping it up. It's only two weeks. If you missed last week, stay tuned. The podcast will be up soon. Man, Lord, I pray you just bless this message. Let these be your words and not mine. Thank you, Lord, for such an interesting character. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get started, I want to do two words of vocabulary And I want them kind of in the back of your mind as we finish Jonah chapter 3 and 4. And they're two words. They're words that we throw around all the time. We sometimes use them interchangeably. And you know what? However you want to define them, you can. But I want to operate off of these definitions tonight because I think that they're powerful. And so let's throw them up. That's grace and mercy. Now, if you were to understand mercy, mercy is not receiving the negative outcome, the punishment that you do deserve. Does that make sense? That's that's the guy who stands before the judge completely guilty, and the judge gives him mercy. Are you following me? Grace is receiving a gift, blessing, positive outcome that you do not deserve. That is a bestowing on you of love of something that is good, not because you earned it, but because you are loved. Somebody cares about you. Are you following me? Mercy is not receiving what we do deserve, and grace is receiving what we don't deserve. Just tuck that into the back of your mind. Last week, we talked about the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is is crazy. It's a a unique kind of literature in the Bible. It is very satirical. It's It's sort of like Saturday Night Live meets a comic book. Everything is way over the top. It makes fun of stereotypes and takes characters that we feel like we know and flips them upside down. Everything's sort of exaggerated And it keeps coming back to main points. We'll talk about those in a few minutes. Jonah's name itself is kind of like one of the puns of the book. Jonah, the son of Amittai, means dove, like beautiful, graceful, gentle, pure, son of faithfulness. And we all go, (laughs) what? Jonah, the guy that runs from God, the guy that that hates Nineveh so much that that he heads in the opposite direction? Dove, son of faithfulness? God calls this guy to go and preach in a big city. The city is actually the capital of the world power, the very, very evil world power, and enemy of his own personal nation. And within the next 50 years, Assyria, Nineveh's capital, will conquer 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel will cease to exist, and Assyria will drag them off into slavery. He has a reason for not wanting to go. We actually talked about his motives being a little bit different than What we expected. And despite Jonah's every attempt to not be used by God, God even reaches out and captures this group of sailors, these idol worshipers, and turns them to himself. Jonah is very much an anti hero. He has his own motives. He wants to do his own thing. He's really not a very good guy or a nice guy. He's certainly not like a great hero of the Bible. And yet, despite his flaws, despite his rebellion, God keeps getting glory. God's mercy keeps being shown. We talked about the storm, that the storm was not a punishment. Often people will see the big fish as the punishment. Oh man, Jonah messed up. God has sent a fish to eat him. But we talked about the storm, that it's God pursuing Jonah on behalf of Nineveh. God is concerned about this city of lost people and he could have found somebody else, but he still cares about Jonah. So he goes after him with this very, tough grace. And he pursues Jonah. And when Jonah was at the lowest of the low, they throw him over the boat and he's sinking. He's underwater and a shadow comes through the water and eats him. And we're like, Jonah's done for. He's fish poop. It's all over for Jonah. And yet the fish was not a punishment. It was a salvation. The storm was a pursuit of God's grace. And the fish was God's mercy that captured him where he was. And out of the fish, Jonah turns and cries out a prayer of repentance. And it was beautiful. We kind of wrapped up with comparing Jonah to Jesus. Jesus makes this comparison. And we talked about the ways that Jesus fulfilled what Jonah was supposed to do. That Jesus is the dove, the son of faithfulness. He did spend three days. And where Jonah was rebellious, Jesus said, send me, I'll go. Where Jonah hated, Jesus loved And we talked about this goofy graphic of the dead fish, the dead fish that doesn't represent the big fish. The fish that's dead here on the shore represents Jonah's passion for Nineveh. It was just impotent. It was empty. It was dead on the shore compared to Jesus, who is the big fish that brings mercy and grace and salvation from our deepest, darkest, most hopeless moments. What a cool character. What an interesting story. And so tonight, we get to pick up. I'm so excited. Ah, God get glory because this is so worth it. Chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 10. It's just kind of like wrapping up. We read the poetry. Jonah gives this beautiful poem prayer, this beautifully Hebraic written Prose of a prayer out of the fish's belly. And then verse 10, it says, so Yahweh, that's when you see L-O-R-D, all capitalized in your Bible, that's the editors letting us know it's the divine name of God. So Yahweh spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah to dry land. <laughs> that's funny to me, you know? It could have been like, you know, it's just sort of he climbed out of the mouth, but it's like God's like... <laughs> <laughs> you know blah. you know he's got seaweed wrapped around his head you know women pay a lot of money for that what is up with Jonah kind of like beauty things anyway so he gets spit up onto dry land and Jonah has had this this rhema this change of heart right let's start in verse 1 of chapter 3 now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah a second time what happened the first time Jonah ran, right? He goes down to Joppa, he gets in a boat, and he goes the opposite direction of Nineveh. And he's going to Tarshish, which is at the Straits of Gibraltar. Like, you can't, if you went any further past Tarshish, you'd go into the open Atlantic Ocean that wasn't known or explored. He went to the, he was on his way to the ends of the earth to get as far away from God as possible. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Is that grace? Thank you, God. For being a God of second chances and third and fourth and 37th and 39th and 742nd chances. What a great God. God could have left him heading to Tarshish and been like, I'm going to find another prophet. God could have left him in the whale. <laughs> Your exit's going to be a lot different than my plan, buddy. But God pursues Jonah because he wasn't giving up on him yet either. He has a city of lost people that he's sending Jonah to that he cares about. And he has a rebellious prophet that he still cares about. And so he comes a second time. Thank you, God, for your grace and for second chances. Jonah, your job isn't over yet. And he sells him, Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Preach to it the message that I tell you. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Yes! Go, Jonah. I wish the story ended there. Man, that'd be cool. Arise and go to Nineveh. So we have to ask ourselves the question. Maybe you've asked yourself, I wonder if his repentance will stick. Some of you are like, well, I didn't before, but now I do, Dom. Is Jonah's repentance, is his great, beautiful prayer out of the fish's stomach, is that going to stick for him? Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Good job, dude. Hang in there. According to the word of Yahweh. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. Big, big city. Verse 4, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. So it's a three-day walk. He's been walking for one day, so he's like just inside, basically, a third of the way through. Then he cried out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. Is anybody a little uncomfortable with this sermon? Now, in Hebrew, that's only five words. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Five words in Hebrew. Jonah, I went through this whole thing. The storm, the fish, the vomit, everything. I get you here. I'm telling you to say what I want you to say. And God has asked him to say five words of sermon. So he told them a what and a what's going to happen, right? Right? Here, here's some things that he didn't mention. Now let's compare Jonah to some of the other prophets. Remember, a prophet is called by God to point out sin so that people will repent so that God can show his grace and mercy. Because if, if we're moving along in sin and no one comes and tells us, most of the time we just keep going. And God is calling prophets to say, you're messing up, you're in sin, God is calling you to repentance. And if you don't repent, there's punishment or there's grace and mercy. And God's desire is for this cycle is grace and mercy. So what does Jonah not seem to include in his five-word sermon? Here's a few things. He doesn't include the why. Why will we be overthrown? I don't know. He doesn't mention that they're wicked. He doesn't mention that anybody's unhappy with them. He doesn't mention overthrown by whom? Are we talking Sodom and Gomorrah? Are we talking about another enemy? He doesn't mention what they can do about it. Is there a way to avert this? Can we appease some God? Is there a way to get out of it? Every Old Testament prophet ever told the people how to repent, how to turn back to God. Jonah's five words. When's it going to happen? What's going to happen? No hope. Finally, where did this message come from? Did Jonah make this up? Was he like in the the whale of the stomach and he's like throwing the dead fish dice and he comes up with this message. Like, where is this message coming from? Is it coming from a God? Is it coming from an ambassador of another city? Every prophet in the Old Testament, on behalf of God, gave all the credit to God. Whether it was punishment, whether it was grace, whether it was a future prediction, God always made himself known because he wanted them to know who was just, who was righteous, who was going to punish, who was going to bring blessing, Jonah totally leaves out God entirely. No credit for God, no mention of Yahweh at all. This kind of brings up the question, at least for me, I pose it out to you, take it or leave it, is Jonah doing kind of like the bare minimum here? Is Jonah still hoping they won't repent and he's sort of self-sabotaging his own mission Would that really be outside of Jonah's character who is, as we read last week, asking them to throw him off this ship to kill him ultimately so he could get out of doing this in the begin with? Are we outside of Jonah's character to think that maybe he's sort of sabotaging his own mission? Man, that makes me uncomfortable. Verse 5, what happens when he gives his five-word sermon? So the people of Nineveh believed God. He didn't even mention God. They don't believe Jonah, they believe God. He didn't even get very far into the city. Notice, did y'all catch that? He didn't even walk across the city yet. He like walked in the gates, five-word sermon, good, I'm done. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast. They gave up eating. They took him seriously and put on sackcloth. That was a way of showing repentance. It was a way of showing mourning. They would go and dump out the potatoes, and then they would wear the cloth from it, itchy, uncomfortable cloth. Proclaimed, uh, sorry. They believe God. Proclaimed a fast. Put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. This is crazy. They are like making a big deal out of this. His message, five word message, goes viral around the city, and the whole city repents. Their hearts are so soft. Their hearts are so repentant that it takes a five word sermon and a guy that walked for a little while, and they're changing everything. Wow, 180 degrees. And God gets all the glory despite Jonah. How wild is that? Verse 6, Then the word came to the king of Nineveh. Did Jonah talk to the king of Nineveh? No. He's still hearing from hearsay. An ambassador or prophet like Jonah could have gotten to the king. And he arose from his throne. Uh Uh-oh. But then he lays aside his robe his royal robes, his symbols of power and covers himself with sackcloth and then he goes a step further than everyone else and he kneels down into ashes. Do y'all understand that picture? He is taking off his robes, his right to make decisions of what are right or wrong and he gets down in the ashes identifying with the sin of his people. That is huge because of a half-cocked prophet with a five-word sermon. That is wild. God is doing something here. Verse 7. Before I move on, I wonder how many times our actions back up what we say. Because Jonah had this really, really good repentant words when he was underwater digesting but his actions are so mediocre. These people hear a bare minimum and they change everything. They declare a fast. They're putting on weird clothes. They're getting in ashes. Their actions are lining up with what they say they believe. Their actions are lining up with the repentance that they are proclaiming. Jonah's repentance lasted. Eh? And theirs is changing everything. Do we... Do we call ourselves Christians, but there's not a shred of evidence to say so? We still talk the same as everybody else. We still wear the same things as everybody else. We still show off what we don't wear with every, everybody else. We still go to all the same places. We watch all the same movies. We, do we have a shred of evidence that actually says that our whole world has been flipped upside down by the gospel? That our repentant heart has brought us to the cross, and it's Jesus that we live for now and not longer ourselves? Man, go Nineveh. (laughs) Worst people ever, five-word sermon, complete turnaround. Holy prophet of Israel, saved from a fish, trying to get people killed. That's wild. Word gets to the king. Verse 7, what does he do? And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by decree. He is putting this on people. And his nobles saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. We're not eating. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and his beast, as in the cattle, be covered in sackcloth and cry mightily out to God. The cattle cry mightily out to God. That's sort of funny. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil ways and from violence That is in his hands. So the turn here, you have to understand, the word for turn means you're walking one direction because you walk like this. And then you do a 180. Something stops you, something catches you, and you decide to go this way, and you walk this way, right? Let us turn from our evil ways and go a different direction. This is what we miss out on in so many of our altar calls. And raise your hand, your eyes closed. like We're like, okay, great, you said the magic prayer, have fun, go life. But there is a 180 turn here that has to happen that says I was living for me, now I live for Jesus. And the cattle are repenting. That's funny. They're putting the cows in in sackcloth and ashes. They are going way over the top. They are so repentant that they're like, we don't even know what it takes to appease this God. Let's go hardcore. Let's go all the way. Let's do everything within our power. How often do we live that passionate? I want my holiness that Jesus gave me to stay pure. I want to separate myself from everything and anything that would dirty me before my God. I want to keep everything in my mouth that might come out that might dirty me. I want to go way over the top for him because he's worth it. That's the kind of passion God's calling us to. Because of our very comfortable relative morality, we often forget that we are desperately hopeless unless God is merciful. That's where this city came to. This city, from a short walk and a five word sermon, came to just as low of a depth and repentant heart, as Jonah did in a whale. They came to a point where they were scared and hopeless. And unless God is merciful, they were toast. They were over. Do we live like that? Do we live with that kind of heart beating inside of us? God, I have got nothing to stand on. I've got no one to lean on. My sin is real. And unless you're merciful... I deserve everything coming to me. Verse 9. This is the king still talking. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Verse 5, verse 10. You ready for this? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring on them, and he did not do it. They turned to 180, and out of response and love and mercy and grace, God turned to 180. That's profound. And man, wouldn't it be cool if it ended right here? We could like high-five Jonah. Wa-pow! Good job, dude. You were like the prophet of prophets. You went to the capital city of the worst nation on earth. Five-word sermon? I've never preached a five-word sermon. And the whole city changes. Man, hero status, Jonah. You get to go home. You're awesome. Mission accomplished, right? Verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. While the sinners are off being humble, doing the right thing, the man of God is being spiteful and self righteous. Man. Verse two. So he prayed to Yahweh. Yeah, love it. So Jonah prayed to Yahweh and said, "Hey, all ready? This, we're about to get Jonah's heart. This is why. This is why he jumped on the ship to Tarshish. I love you guys. This is why Jonah jumped on a, a ship to Tarshish. This is why Jonah is angry." Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, that's why I fled previously to Tarshish. For I knew that you were gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant and loving kindness, the one who relents from doing harm. I knew you would be like this God. I knew that you would look for some sort of loophole to let them off the hook. What a punk God. Jonah's heart is fully exposed. His motivations are laid bare. He hates Nineveh. He hates these people. And you know what's crazy? Is Jonah is quoting God's own word. Exodus 34. I don't think I have a slide for it, but I want to make sure you don't miss this. Because this is so interesting to me. Exodus 34, verse 6. Y'all remember the story about Moses and the Hebrews? And Moses has gone up the mountain. There was fire and smoke on the mountain from God's awesomeness hanging out up there. And Moses is up there. And they see the people on the ground below the mountain. The Hebrews look up and they see this crazy sight of God's presence manifested in one place. And they come to the brilliant idea of making a gold calf and calling it the God that they see up there. And they start worshiping and doing all sorts of nasty stuff around the calf. Calling it God, total full blown idolatry. Moses comes down. He gets mad. God's like taps, taps on Moses' shoulder and goes, "Moses, I'm about to kill everybody. <laughs> like, I'm done with this people." Moses, you know, he chunks the, the stone tablets. You know, and he's angry. But then Moses turns back to God and says, "God, please, please don't hold this against them. Please don't don't do this thing." He intercedes for them. That's why God called Moses, because he knew Moses would want God to find the loophole. Are you finding me? Are you picking up what I'm putting down here? God called Moses because because Moses, God wants to show mercy and grace. God was looking for an ambassador to call on him for mercy. And then Mo, God tells Moses, fine, I won't wipe everybody out. And I'm going to tell you why. And here's the verse. Verse 6. And the Lord passed before him, talking about Moses, Yahweh Yahweh God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving sin and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty. Did y'all y- recognize that? Jonah is using God's words to hurl back at him. God is, Moses is quoting God's own words about himself. And he's using it as an insult to God. He's thrown, I knew you'd be like this. I knew you were going to be merciful and compassionate. And you'd try to find some way to show mercy. Isn't that crazy? Jonah, man, you're off. You're off track, dude. Verse three. Therefore, now, O Yahweh, please take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. God, I'd rather be dead than live in a world where you can forgive them. You realize how strong that is? I can't can't live in a world where God is gracious to my enemy. Painfully ironic and hypocritical. Did y'all catch this? This is, yeah. (laughs) Jonah is mad because God's showing them mercy when it was how many days ago that he received God's mercy. He is not wanting for them what God gracefully gave him. Isn't that upside down and backwards? Jonah gets rescued. He offers up this great, eloquent prayer. Nineveh gets rescued. Bad attitude, hating, complaining, hurling God's own words back at him. Where's the big poem, Jonah, about how great and merciful God is? You know, we might not like to admit it, but we relate a lot more to Jonah in this. We're happy to receive God's forgiveness for ourselves, but we really want to tell God how he should handle his forgiveness for that person we don't like. Hey, thank you, God, for mercy. Thanks for grace. But let me tell you where you need to stop that. You know how they hurt me. You know what they're doing. You see how they drive. To be serious though, isn't that scary? That we actually had that attitude with God. So God asked him a question. Verse 4. And Yahweh said, is it right for you to be angry? Let's see what Jonah says so Jonah went out of the wait a minute there's no hello so Jonah went out of the city and said there's no response from Jonah God asks him a question God challenges his heart and Jonah just stonewalls Mm-mm. Mm-mm. and he leaves the city so this whole conversation so far has been happening in the city Jonah's having this whole bad attitude in front of the people that just got saved and then he stomps his way out of the city let's see what he does he goes out of the city he sat on the east side of the city there he made himself a shelter he's getting comfortable he's got to wait 40 days now and sat under it in the shade until he might see what would become of the city. He's looking for fireworks. Jonah just wants to watch the world burn. (laughs) That is so crazy. Jonah is having a fit. There's wilderness outside the city. There's not trees or anything like that. So he builds a shelter, and it's probably just like a rock wall. You can't put a roof on it because you don't to suspend rocks over your head, right? I want to pick up something that I learned that just blew me away. Now, the word overthrow or destroyed or overturned that you see in your Bible is the Hebrew word hapak, H-A-P-A-K. It sounds Klingon, but it's Hebrew. In Hosea, now... Words, just like in English, there can be translated different ways. If I say, man, I came in and destroyed this cake. I mean, I just obliterated it, right? If I say, man, this, this soccer player came in and destroyed the record. Or it could be like, my kid went in and destroyed his room. We have like these different ways of reading the word destroyed. Hebrew words are like that too. And here's three examples in the Bible. Hosea 7.8, God is talking about Israel like a loaf of bread that hasn't been flipped over. As in, when he says overturned, he means it was bread that got burnt because no one turned it over. Right? Rotated it. In Lamentations 4.6, it talks about how Israel... Or Jerusalem specifically is destroyed like Sodom. it is overturned, it is overthrown, it's been obliterated, right no stone left on top of another and in psalms thirty eleven the word hapak is discussed in using in comparing how God is going to turn our grief into dancing, as in he will transform he will change so When Jonah is out there doing his five-word sermon and he says, 40 days, the city will be overturned. What way do you think that he believed God was going to use this word? To destroy, to obliterate, to break it down. Which way do you think God was after this whole time? God wanted him to go in and say, I've got restoration for you. I've got heart changes for you. Watch what I can do. I have punishment, but let me tell you, if you'll repent, I'm willing to turn this thing around and flip it over. God uses Jonah's words against him. (laughs) That is too cool. I love it. God roasts Jonah (laughs) on so many levels. That is just too funny. So God had just asked him, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? He didn't get a response. So God is so gracious. He's so full of grace. Jonah does not deserve grace right now, but God keeps pursuing. And so he didn't get a response. Jonah stonewalls, he goes out, he's waiting for God's fireworks, and God comes to him again, but he takes on a different tactic. Verse six, And Yahweh God prepared a plan and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head and deliver him from the misery is not it's very sunny out. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. The word means extremely happy about the plant. He is like, bang, shout out to the plant. I got shade. This is great. I got shade while I watch God roast people. Man. I, this is the first time we see Jonah express a positive emotion. He is extremely happy about the plant. He's loving the plant. Verse 7, what happens? God is coming at him at a whole, totally different angle, but he's still pursuing Jonah. Verse 7, But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. This is so comical. <laughs> big fish, big storm, medium plant, little worm. <laughs> verse 8. Oh, no, sorry, verse 7. God prepared a worm, and so it damaged the plant that the plant withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, a big one, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And then he wished for death again for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. (laughs) Jonah tells the sailors, Kill me. Nineveh repents. God, I want to die. God gives him a plant. Yes, plant. Life could not be better. Plant dies. I want to die. Man. Verse 9. God is still trying to reach this guy. Then Jonah said, again God said to Jonah, y'all catch this. God is asking him the same question again, but he's putting a twist on it. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? See, God's still chasing him, and now he's changing his tactics. He's going after Jonah's heart differently. And Jonah's response it is right for me to be angry, even to death. (laughs) Jonah. You have a right to be angry over people. Do you have a right to be angry over a plant? Jonah wants the plant to be spared but not the people. Jonah is so angry. He's completely irrational. I want your mercy. I want your grace. When I was at my lowest, I want you there, but I want them to have your judgment and punishment. He wants the plant to leave. He wants the plant to live because it benefits him. He wants Nineveh to die because it benefits him. Verse 10. All right, this is where God's just going to drop the mic. But Yahweh said, You have pity on the plant for which you didn't labor, you didn't make it grow, and it came up at night and it perished at night. And should I not have pity on Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 people who can't even discern their right hand from their left, and much livestock and cows? Let's just say, Jonah, that your irrational anger is totally valid. I'm laughing at you on the inside, Jonah, but let's just say for a minute that your anger about the plant is valid. If you're so angry about the plant, do I not have a right as the creator to have concern over people? And the story ends, and much livestock And we end the book of Jonah. It's like so abrupt, right? I want to know what Jonah said. I want to know what happens with Nineveh. Nothing. (laughs) The author does this on purpose because he's holding Jonah up. Like, let's, let's say I have a frame, a picture of Jonah, and he's holding Jonah up like this. And just imagine that picture of Jonah disappears into a mirror. And he's wanting us to look introspectively Back at ourselves. Yep, I've shown you this character, and he seems ridiculous. He seems so far out. He seems so off base, so hateful and self-righteous and prejudiced. Now let's look at ourselves. Maybe you see yourself a little bit in this character. Maybe you're not as, as innocent as you'd like to be. Maybe you're not Nineveh. Maybe you're not that much like me. Graceful, merciful, forgiving, maybe you're a lot like Jonah. And he makes us, he forces us to look at ourselves. What, do, what are those things that we see as so valuable, so important in our lives? Why do we see them as important? Is it just because they're about us? Are we forsaking people every day for this thing that we just have to have that's so important? I love my kid. Hey, hey, that's Silas' version of amen, brother. You see, God's love outweighs our judgments and our self-righteousness. We need to get that through. We spend our lives pursuing us. Jonah was only after pursuing himself. When God has people on the line... God cares so much about Nineveh that he went through this crazy story to just get someone to go and preach because he knew their hearts were ready. How many ready hearts are we walking past every day? How many ready hearts that right now you are making a judgment call on your mind that they're not ready? God is sending Jonah. And you know what? That mirror should reflect on all of us that he's sending us to. And thank God for his grace that he keeps going after us because of his mercy that he wants to show on the people around us. What a God we serve. Here's the hard truth of the book of Jonah. God loves me. God loves my enemy. Can we accept that? Oh, sure, Dom. Yeah, God can love whoever he wants. He's good. He's sovereign. Yeah, he can love whoever he wants. But you know what? God has not left it at that. God has asked you to love his enemy, your enemy. You see, God works in this circular pattern. Judgment is not opposite of love. Out of God's love, he judges so that people will repent, so that he can show mercy and grace because of his love. I heard a great example the other day. If you were walking past a school and you saw two fifth grade boys kicking a girl on the ground, would you deem that as wrong? then you have made a judgment call. You judge that it was wrong that they were doing that. I hope you would, and I hope that you would do something about it. And we have a God that sees evil, and it's killing his people. And he's making a judgment because he is true. He is just. He's the only one rightful to do so. And he is calling his people to the carpet. Guess what? We're part of that. He's calling us to the carpet so that we can repent, but don't miss it, so that he can now show grace and mercy. Because he's loving. Love will deal with sin. Love also extends grace and mercy at repentance. That is the God we serve. What a great God. God is not out to punish because he's just mad about life. He is out to call us to a fork in the road. Because his heart is to pursue Are you, the reader of Jonah, okay with the fact that God loves your enemy? Do we hate our enemies? Do we wish and hope and kind of even pray that bad things will happen? Meanwhile, accepting mercy and grace for ourselves? Luke chapter 6 verse 27 and 28 is kind of one of those verses that we read and we nod at and then we try to forget quickly. Jesus is talking, he says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Hate is not a soft word. Do good to the people that hate your guts. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Love your enemies. It is critical. Like the gospel message, we were sinners God sends Jesus to die on a cross to take our sin. He raises from the grave. He ascends into heaven. That whole transaction lays his righteousness over us so that we can know God. That gospel carries with it the absolute fundamental fact that we are called to love our enemies because God did it first, and that was every one of us. That's where Jesus can get off saying such a strong statement is Jesus first loved you and me. Not that we loved God first, but he first loved us and sent his son to be the atonement for our sin. That's crazy. Maybe this brings whole new light to for God so loved the world that he gave his, ever, that he gave his son, that whosoever should believe in him will have everlasting life. And don't forget the second verse. He didn't send his son to condemn but to save. Because God is not out to judge, to condemn. He is out to try to show love and mercy, and he's calling you and me to do the same thing. Do you remember that story that Jesus tells? This guy owes like a bazillion dollars, like more than he could ever pay off in a thousand lifetimes, some astronomical number. And he stands before his king, and he is like penitent to the hilt. He's on his face. He can't do it. And the king gives him mercy forgives his debt. Right? And he is like thrilled, overjoyed, a debt he could never pay. And he heads outside the courts and he's all excited. But then he sees a servant that owes him like 50 bucks and he grabs the servant and he starts choking him out. And The servant can't pay. So he drags him off and chokes him out some more. And the king hears about this thing and he calls the servant and says, why, when I gave you this, could you not extend the same mercy to somebody else? And then he puts the first in prison forever, basically, until he can work off the debt that he'll never work off. That's the story of Jonah. Jonah was at the lowest of the low, hopeless, and God plucks him out of the ocean with this fish of grace. And then Jonah turns around to a city of people that don't know their left from the right, as in they've been misled. They haven't had someone come and tell them they needed to repent yet. And Jonah can't even bring himself to show love and forgiveness. He just wants ill fate for them. He just wants their destruction. Jonah is that servant. But Jesus wasn't talking to Jonah. He was talking to us. How often are we that? We take our salvation. Thank you, God, for my salvation. Awesome. But I'm sorry I'm not going to be able to forgive this person. They just hurt me too much. They've just gone too far. They just annoy me so much. And maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's we just do the bare minimum. Because I'm a Christian, I have to, <laughs> yes, thank you. I'm just going to do the bare minimum. I'm going to avoid them wherever I can because that's the Christian thing to do because I can't even tell you what I would say if we actually. T- that's not God's heart for you or them. His heart is an extravagant love, full of extravagant mercy and extravagant grace. We're the servant. We're the ones that are called to, maybe we're the ones called to repentance tonight. Maybe we look in the mirror and go, oh, I'm way more like Jonah than Jesus. I'm way more like the fish dead on the shore than I am the one that is capturing people for God's grace. I want to be over here. I want to be used by Jesus. I'm, I'm... that's an old version. That's the casual Christian version. Maybe tonight we need to look in the mirror, good and hard. Let's close our eyes. Lord, you know what is in our hearts. You know those things that we've harbored for a long time. Prejudices. Anger, bitterness, unforgiveness. Lord, I pray for a release for your people tonight. Not because of anything that we do, but because you are quickening our hearts through your Holy Spirit to chisel away the stony parts and replace them with your heart that beats for people. The people that are the worst of the worst of people. And instead of wishing ill, we will start praying that you will forgive them. Jesus did it. What a love. Only the kind of love that you can instill in us. And so Lord, I ask you, through your Holy Spirit to pour your love and your heart into your people tonight. May we have the voice of mercy with the actions of grace. Let us walk in your ways. Lord, you say that if we won't forgive, that you won't forgive us when we stand before you. because you gave the first sacrifice, the greatest sacrifice to pay a debt we can never pay. Lord, I pray that we'll cherish your gift so much that we will remove the debts of everyone else, that we will even pray that you will forgive the people that we dislike the most. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your love for them. And if you will Use us, may we be a people that say, Send me, I will go. Thank you for Jonah. Thank you, Lord, that the book ends with us. You are gracious, you are kind, and merciful, and loving. between you and God. I'm not asking for hands. Just between you and God. If tonight pricked you a little extra hard, say a prayer just between you and him and say, Lord, that's me. Let him hear the words of your repentance. Lord, I pray that our repentance is followed by actions. Let us be more like Nineveh, the ones who are soft-hearted, humble, desiring to go way over the top with extravagant repentance. Lord, we lift up our hearts to you. They belong to you. If there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, go get them, Lord. Maybe send us. Lord, let them not find peace until they've found your love. Keep pricking them. Pursue them with your Holy Spirit so that in the middle of the night at some point or during prayer time at some church service or in the middle of the hallway or wherever you catch them, And everything will come together and they'll say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe that you died for me. And I give my life, all of it to you. Father, you are good. You're merciful. You're mighty. You're graceful. You are patient. We glorify your name for who you are. You are Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you, Elevate.